could give you a benediction now and have had a full morning, a wonderful, but we're not. That was wonderful singing this morning. And uh, thank you, Jane and Amos and the congregation and joining in in those uh, wonderful Christmas hymns of praise. We're going to pray now and we'll get to the word. Father, it is again a privilege as your people to gather in your name. That name which is above every other name. The name at which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. As we just heard, we need to fall on our knees right now and to hear the message once again that you love us. You redeemed us from the pit. You've purchased us at a great price. Father, we pray now that you would be with this congregation, the needs that are represented here and uh, by those who may not be here this morning for whatever reason. Father, you know the burdens that are upon our hearts this morning. You know the needs, and you invite us to come and to cast our care upon you, knowing that you care for us. Again, we thank you for the special season of the year when we mark your birth, though we don't know the exact date. We know the fact that you came, and we rejoice in that this morning. Father, we pray that your praise might be made glorious through your people this day, this season, the time in which you've called us to live, and that we might shine forth as bright lights in a darkening world as we await your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. It's in your uh, Worship folders this morning, it's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We're looking at Jesus tabernacling among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear light and all that might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless his word. Please be seated. Last week and this week we're looking here in John chapter 1 and we should read the gospel of John for the answers to the question, who is Jesus? John's gospel talks about Christ in a different way than Matthew and Luke do. They record his conception, his birth, what we call the Christmas story. 
But in John chapter 1, as we just read, the first three verses, he was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He was continuing. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was named. We don't find his human name, what I call his Christmas name, until verse 17, the name Jesus. It's only mentioned once here in the first chapter. John begins by introducing to the one who's called the Word, who we know is Christ Jesus. That was a concept that was familiar to the ancient world. In the prologue, the first 18 verses, we have a summary of who Jesus is. He is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word. We saw that last week. He is the articulation of the thought of God. When God thought about us, he thought about sending his Son. So we could see how much he loved us. Sometimes we hear people say, don't tell me how much you love me. Show me. I want to see that love. God's thought about us, God's heart toward us was a heart of love. But we couldn't hear his heart, we couldn't hear his thinking, so he sent his son, his only son. The one who spoke said, let there be light. And there was light. The life-giving Jesus When a person makes his home in our midst, he moves in with us. He identifies with them. And the incarnation, the Christmas story, is about Christ moving in to the planet Earth. The eternal Son, so moving in, so identifying with us, so becoming a part of our story, fully, totally identifying all that it means to be human and yet without Son. Only in the complete identification of the flesh could Christ, our second Adam, the perfect Adam, become what the first Adam was not. Adam, the first Adam, sinned, and he died. As we listen to John, John listened to Jesus. John lived with him, ate with him, ministered with him. He slept beside him. And what John tells us he saw was a tent, a tabernacle. First, it was the Word here in John chapter 1. The Word made flesh, the eternal Word, that marvelous articulation of the mind and the heart of God. That in and of itself is a staggering thought. Yet in the mind of God, what he intended from the beginning, the most remarkable thing about our race is that we are image bearers. Look around this morning. Just take a moment, look around. We are image bearers. We bear his image. Oh, brothers, how we ought to love one another because we bear the mark, the image of Jesus Christ. And then he placed eternity in our hearts, a desire to know him and to know what's beyond this life. We were created by the uncreated. Just that a thought this morning? created by the one who is uncreated, who is eternal. Man has the capacity for God. No animal has that. No animal has any idea or concept of God. But every human being has a concept, has a hunger and thirst for something within. Whether we know it or not, we're longing, we're searching for all of our lives, for something that's going to fill the emptiness, the void in our hearts. And that capacity was designed by God 
before God, to be the dwelling place. And now at last in human history it happened. God became man. God took on flesh. And it's the coming together of God and man. Growing up, I was taught that buildings like this were the house of God. I don't know if you were told that. This is, you're going to God's house. And it is, in some ways, his house. And it is a special place. And it should be dedicated and a place of reverence. But where does God live? Inside of man. Man was designed to be the dwelling place of God. So now you've looked around and seen each other as image bearers of God. Look around and see each other as the dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell? Here. You could follow me home and see where I live, but where you want to know where God lives. Man was designed to be the dwelling place of God. That should give you a Christmas hope. That should give you a Christmas thought. So the church is important, and we do come together as God's people, but we come together as God's people because he's within us by invitation. And the same truth is amplified for us here in John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word dwelt among us. The, dwell, the word dwelt among us, literally, excuse me, <coughs> the word dwelt among us, he tabernacled in our midst, he came to pitch his tent in our midst, in fact the, uh, the Greek word is not the ordinary word for, for dwelling, to abide, he came to pitch his tent tent. It refers to the book of Exodus where we read, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle was indeed a dwelling place, but Moses' tabernacle was a visual. Moses' tabernacle was a visualization of the word, Jesus Christ becoming flesh. We'll try this one. The Old Testament was a, was a shadow. It was temporary. The New Testament, Jesus Christ tabernacling among us, is new, internal, and spiritual. Much about the incarnation bewilders us. Perhaps the greatest fact is that he came, and he came and dwelt in our midst, fully God. Uh, looking back to the book of Exodus where the Lord revealed himself to Moses. He said, I am. We looked at that last week very briefly. We have it again over in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Uh, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the, uh, the elders. And uh, they said to him, you're not 50 years old. How can you have said you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what happened next? They took up stones to stone him. They understood what he was saying. They understood that this baby, Jesus, who had grown up to be a man, 
was the great I am. He was God, God in the flesh. If you want to go over a few more chapters over in the book of John, uh, in John chapter 18, verse 6, they're about to take Jesus off to the cross. Judas has betrayed him. They're coming to get him. Judas received a detachment of troops in chapter 18. Officers from the chief priest and Pharisees came with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. That he is in italics. It wasn't there in the original. He said, I am. And what's their reaction? They fall back. They understood who this Jesus was. They understood who he was proclaiming to be, the great I am. And that's the one that we have here in John chapter 1, the great I am. Paul writes to the Israelites, to the Israelites belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. And while we love that image of a baby, he is also God. He is God over all. The Bible attributes acts to Jesus that only God performs, creating, sustaining, forgiving sins. Every attribute belonging to God belongs to Jesus because he is God. But he's also fully man. He's called the son of David, the son of Abraham, descended from David according to the flesh, born of a woman we saw a few weeks ago, born in the likeness of men. He has flesh and bones, and body parts, unlike a spirit. Peter tells us he suffered in the flesh. He thirsted, he was tempted, he ate, he drank, he slept. And thus the author of Hebrews writes, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every characteristic belonging to man belongs to Jesus except without sin. And so this thought of the tabernacle, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, takes us back to the Old Testament immediately to that remarkable manifestation in the wilderness. The whole camp of Israel wandered for 40 years, and in their midst there was a tent, a tabernacle. That remarkable building was made of animal skins. The first thing we see is the necessity of the shedding of blood, don't we? Once you look at the tabernacle, it's covered with animal skins. The shedding of blood is there. Beautiful woven cloth. Special rods of gold and silver and decorations divided into two rooms, a holy place and a holy of holies. How remarkable, how different that tabernacle was. Because over it hovered a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine that hovering over this church? <laughs> a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Because it was God's dwelling place on earth. It was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in and lived with his people. The tabernacle had no meaning apart from Jesus. Its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point to Jesus Christ coming and beyond that to heaven itself. In Colossians 2 we read, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form. Thousands of years before Jesus came, God purposed the tabernacle. 
that there, and that there would be one who would fulfill the tabernacle for us. Two chapters in the Bible are given over to creation. Forty chapters to the tabernacle. Now, I know God didn't put the chapter divisions there, okay? <laughs> so rest, but look at two chapters and 40 chapters over to the tabernacle. Does that tell you something about the tabernacle? It must be very important because it's going to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it points to our, our heavenly tabernacling yet to come, ultimately heaven. On that mountain, Moses received two instructions. One was the law, and one was the tabernacle. The law said, here's what you must do. But you can't come to God by yourself. The tabernacle says, you can't do it, but here's how you can come to God. Isn't that wonderful? You can't come to God by yourself, but here's how you can come through the tabernacle, through the Lord Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was temporary. Approximately, they had the uh, tabernacle for 33 years. By the time they constructed it and got it, 30, is that interesting? 33 years in the wilderness. Jesus was born in a borrowed manger. He had nowhere to lay his adult head. He borrowed a boat to preach from, a coin for an illustration. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Just temporary, passing through. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a place of revelation where God made himself known. Jesus Christ makes God known to us as the tabernacle. The word becomes flesh where we hear the word of God. We proclaim the word of God through Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was out, outwardly humble and unattractive. Isaiah tells us there was no form or majesty that we should look upon him. His appearance was not attractive. The tabernacle were, was where God met with man. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know the Father, you come through me. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, God established a tabernacle. He came to man. When we have Jesus Christ tabernacling, God is coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All other religions that I can think of have men working their way up to God to be like God, to improve themselves. Christianity reverses that. God comes down, redeems us, and sanctifies us by his Holy Spirit. When the people of God gather to worship regularly, there's nothing else like it. If you know who you are in Christ, and you know who Christ is, this worship this morning, there's nothing else like it on this face of the earth. It's special. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp, the gathering place for God's people. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a place of sacrifice, where sacrifices were made. Hebrews 10 says, But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 
The tabernacle was a place of forgiveness. But now we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, our peace offering, our guilt offering, and all of the sacrifices are fulfilled in him. The tabernacle was a place where the law was preserved. Christ completely fulfilled the law. And then he went to the cross and he took it to the cross so it no longer impacted us, delivered us. Christ came not to announce a solution to sin. Do you smell heresy there? Christ came not to announce a solution to sin. He came to be the solution. Christ is the answer. Christ is the solution to sin. The tabernacle was a place where the priestly family was fed, a priesthood of believers, Christ, the bread of life. He's the temple furniture. There's the altar of incense. Our prayers ascending to God as incense to him, a sweet fragrance. Christ, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, and therefore we can come because of Jesus Christ boldly to the throne of grace. There's lampstands there in the uh, tabernacle. Reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant. When you go into the Holy of Holies, when the high priest went in once a year to make sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, there was that mercy seat. The covenant was kept there. A, A box that was covered in gold represents the throne room of God. Blood was sprinkled there, and it's called the mercy seat. We come to the mercy seat. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. And so we gather around the blood-bought mercy seat. 2 Corinthians 2 reminds us also that our bodies are tents. Paul says, someday you're going to take down this tent. You're going to lay this old tent down. It's kind of getting tattered and worn. Someday you'll lay it down. And you'll have a new, new one in Christ. But we're, we are called tabernacles, tents for our bodies. But also in Corinthians, it tells us that the Holy Spirit comes within us because we are temples. Tabernacles, temporary. Temples, permanent. When the Holy Spirit comes within your life, he's there to stay. And And life and death and nothing will separate you from that relationship you have in Jesus Christ because he is permanent within us. Down in verse 14, we continue on, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. John shifts from an elevated, impersonal style to a personal declaration. And there are probably 11 Greek words for to behold. John chooses the one by the Holy Spirit that has wondering significance. He just didn't glance at it, just didn't look at it quickly, but he studied it. He observed it. He gave it careful scrutiny. He inspected it. He was with Jesus Christ for three, three and a half years, and during that time, he beheld the glory. What's the glory? The glory is the sum total of all that God is. All that God is is his glory, his supreme excellency, It means the presence of God. A word that you would know, doxa, D-O-X-A. Doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's the glory of God. The Old Testament was a place where God met with man, was filled with the glory of God. And John tells us the Lord Jesus was 
the expression of the glory of God. Jesus emanated the glory of God, the light of God. In fact, over in the book of John, 42 times we find the word light, more than all the other Gospels put together. We know from the uh, Christmas story, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They could see the glory of the Lord. It was outshining. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus did shine. He shined. He shined. He shone as the sunlight. His face did shine. And then in the new heaven and the new earth will be lighted by his glory. The glory of the Lord. When we come in contact with Jesus Christ, we come in contact with the glory of God. So what was that glory? John says it was grace and truth. Grace is power that lifts us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Many definitions of grace. Someone has defined it as that which God does within you without you. That, that which God does within you without you. Grace is the generosity of love for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The greatest evidence of grace. The generosity of love. Grace is God's power erupting in our hearts and our souls from which we move from death to life, from darkness to light, from being hell-bound to being heaven-bound. The grace of God. And then he moves on to truth. Truth is mentioned 25 times in the Gospel of John as we read about truth. Does it mean factual truth? Yes. Does it mean objective truth? Yes. But more than all of that, he is the truth. Truth is a manifestation of reality, how things really are. It wipes all the facades away, the phoniness, the shams, the veils that we put up. Jesus said, I am the truth. Later on in John, he said, the truth shall set you free, and you shall be free indeed. He said, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Today we have your truth and we have my truth. There's only one truth. A truth that doesn't change. Your truth may change, their truth may change, but there's a truth that never, never changes. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and for all ages. It's an unchanging truth and it's full. He is full of grace and truth. He's the ultimate revelation of God, the fullest expression of love. The Old Testament was kind of a progressive revelation of truth. But when Jesus came, he gave God's final truth, God's final answer out in the open. From the creche to the cross, the line is inseparable. Christmas only points us to Good Friday to Easter, to the ascension, to the return of Christ. Grace and truth are found in a person, a person who came, pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. 
And one day we will pitch our tents and it will be permanent in the Lord's presence. Verse 15, the apostle goes on to quote John the Baptist and talks about the John the Baptist and the timing of John the Baptist and his ministry. But the fact is that he's saying that John the Baptist saw this one who also tented among us. John goes on to tell us what he meant and what has meant to every believer since that time. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, remember? The, the law was there to show us we can't do it. The tabernacle to show us that God did it all. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through the one who tabernacled among us. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. You take away grace and truth, you take away the gospel. Many people think that the law and grace are contradictory. Actually, they are together. The law and grace supplement each other. The law makes demands, rightfully and justly, and no one can meet those demands. But grace and truth are given to meet those demands. In Exodus chapter 20, we have a remarkable account of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And at the giving of the law came smoke and thunder and earthquake, and fire, and fear, and trembling. And in the next section, we have all about the tabernacle, God's provision to meet the demands of the law. Jesus Christ, God's provision to meet the demands of the law. So with John, we can say, out of his fullness, we have grace and truth. We have all received grace upon grace. And that in the the Greek is grace piled upon grace, piled upon grace. You never run out of grace. We never run out. They're not pitted against each other, but it's a provision God has made for us. It's, the word there is anti. It can be in the place of. There's more grace. Better than those little Kleenexes that you keep pulling them out. You know, one keeps coming out after another, but eventually the box empties. This box of grace never empties. His grace is always there. It's an inexhaustible supply. And so we have the grace and the truth, the ultimate truth found in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son who dwells in the heart of reality. And then it says, he has made it known. He has exegeted it. There's a big word for us. He's exegeted. He's made known the Father's heart to us. He's explained who the Father is to us. When we have Jesus, we have the Father's heart, a loving Father, a Father who places his arms around us, a Father who with his wisdom guides our way, a Father who has the power to protect us, a Father who has the power to guard us, to guide our steps. Philip says something very profound in John 14, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the doctrine of the sonship of Jesus Christ and why it really matters. Jesus is the highest and best expression of glory. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. There's that creator again that we found last week. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the glory of God. 
the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word. There's that word of power. And then it tells us the son here is by the father's right side. He expresses the heart. He expresses the love in the closest, most intimate uh, relationship possible. And while Christmas is full of joy and celebration, the world is not exempt from sorrow, is it? We have our sorrows. For some hurting hearts experience intensified grief at this time of the year. Memories flood our minds. Perhaps the memory of a loved one gone to be with the Lord, a wayward child, a recent job loss, a medical diagnosis, changes in the familiar, loneliness, dilemmas, difficulties. They're there. They're part of life. But the word is full of grace and truth for us. When Jesus was born, his parents didn't plan a gender reveal party, though they knew it was going to be a boy. No one ordered a baby shower cake for Mary. Oh, Mary, yes, she prepared for the arrival of the baby, but a business trip for a tax purpose probably was not on her bucket list. Riding a donkey most likely would not have been her choice in the ninth month of pregnancy. Jesus, who came in tabernacle among us, wasn't born into ideal circumstances. Despite the stable, which most of us would have thought was not appropriate, the light of the world made his grand entrance in the form of a little baby. Human flesh held the Son of God. The glory of the night could not be constrained. Angels sang their glory to God and hope. The only true hope of the world was born. And so despite the difficult circumstances, the feelings you may have that you're facing, I want to assure you this morning that God's plan is best. He loved you and he loved me so much that he came and gave his only son. And if he loves us that much, don't think otherwise, that he could not be in control of all the things that are in your life, the things that you're facing this morning. No matter the ache or the longing, the sorrow or the suffering, the birth of Jesus brings hope and healing, and then we can celebrate with joy. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We're just going to take about a minute and a half just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. If there's things we need to, to, um, to speak to him about, let's just do that, and then we're going to sing um, Joy to the World. <laughs> 